0: Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Um, so this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, and we're going to be talking about navigating God's will. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you feel like God, you know, God's kind of giving you a direction and you're kind of like, how do I get there? And, you know, maybe maybe you've sensed God's call on your life for something and you're trying to get there. But it's like, how do you navigate? Well, Paul was trying to get to Jerusalem and he's navigating God's will to get to Jerusalem. So we'll be looking at that this morning. I think it's very applicable for us in our lives today. Um, So why don't we go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer and then we'll dig into the scriptures. Father, we do come before you this morning, Lord, we thank you uh, for all the people that made decisions for Christ this past week, uh, Lord, in in North Carolina, and Lord, we thank you for Franklin Graham, willing to go to all these small towns to minister to the gospel, minister the gospel to these smaller towns, Lord, we just just rejoice in the vision and the burden that you've given him, and Lord, we just pray your blessing upon him in that ministry. Lord, uh, I pray this morning, Lord, that as we dig into your word, Lord, maybe we're struggling, with your will for our lives this morning. Maybe there's things that are just, we're confused, or, or we, just, we just need direction, Lord. I pray this morning that the things that we look at this morning would be an encouragement to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. We pray your blessing upon the teaching of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, I'm going to start reading from verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Cos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo." So if you were to just pick up this chapter in the middle of the book of Acts and and you read that verse 1, we had departed from them, you'd probably go, well, what what is he talking about? What is Luke referring to? Well, he's referring back to chapter 20, of course, obviously. In chapter 20, Paul was still on, he was on his way to Jerusalem. He was in a ship and he sailed past Ephesus. He had spent almost three years in Ephesus but he wanted, to, he wanted to speak with the elders of the church in Ephesus, but he didn't want to stay in Ephesus because he was trying to get to Jerusalem. So he sailed past, landed at a town or a city, I guess, known as Miletus, and he sent for the elders, and they came. We talked about that two weeks ago. And uh, he ministered to them and shared his heart with the elders there at Miletus. Paul's heart for the elders at Miletus is, is revealed and the Greek word used in verse one, says that he departed from them, or we departed from them. That Greek word "departed" means to draw off or to tear away. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you're visiting family or friends, or you know you just made a just had some great fellowship with someone, and you know you have to leave? It's kind of a tearing away. So the past six, five months or so, four months, five months, I've developed some really neat. Of relationships with some pastors and I've got one more week that I'm gonna be doing some cleanup stuff there, taking care of some administrative stuff. But you know, at this point it's almost like, you know, I don't know if I'm gonna see you guys anymore. And and I've been able to just develop some really neat friendships and stuff. In fact I had a guy text me at 530. They forget that our time's a little bit different. He texted me at five thirty saying I'm praying for you and stuff and I'm like, okay, thanks. You know, I didn't respond till six thirty when I got up but but uh, anyways. But that's the feeling that Paul had, just leaving them, being torn away. And so, Paul had a heart for the, for the elders, for the church of Miletus. Paul's heart for the Jewish people is also revealed in Romans chapter 9. In verses 3 and 4, he says, For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. My countrymen, according to the flesh, you are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Man, he, 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 want, he, he would rather be accursed himself and, and have other Jewish people come to faith in Christ. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Paul had a heart for the Jewish people that he came from, from his own countrymen. Paul's ministry, or his priority, I should say, for ministry was given in to the Lord on the road to Damascus. Remember, he lost his eyesight, and then, and then he came and he, and he just hung out in Damascus until Ananias came and prayed for him to receive his sight. Do you imagine what was going on in, in Paul, or actually it was Saul of Tarsus at the time, what was going on in his heart? Well, in chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord told Ananias, he said, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And we know that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his first priority in ministry. The second priority was to be to kings. He would end up speaking to kings. And then finally, to the Jewish people. Well, Paul had sensed a calling to go to Jerusalem. We read that back in Acts chapter 19. I'll I'll read it to you, verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. In chapter 20... Verse 16, and I alluded to this already, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. That's why he didn't hang out in Ephesus, probably because of all the relationships that he had. It would have been that much harder to leave with all the people that would want to see Paul and, and, and say goodbye to him. So Paul had a burden for the Jewish people. Paul felt called to go to Jerusalem. He had a general direction to head, but there were no nonstop flights to Tel Aviv at that time. So it says, finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. We landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. I don't know if you caught that, but Paul didn't go on a luxury cruise ship. He went on a cargo ship. You know, they probably had room for a few passengers or so. And so Paul and his companions, hey, can we give you guys some money? Will you take us wherever you're going? And so he had a general direction to go to Jerusalem, but the ship wasn't going straight to, over to Israel. It landed at Tyre, and there it unloaded its cargo. So basically, Paul took whatever mode of transport. I mean, he had a general direction to go, But he took however way God provided. Whatever was provided for him, that's the way he went to reach his destination. You know, maybe the Lord has placed a destination, and it may not be a physical place. It may be just a place in your life or a position in your life or a ministry or something. He's laid it on your heart. God has revealed it to you, and like Paul, in your spirit, You know that that's God's will for you. It's like, man, the Lord just keeps revealing and confirming. I know what God's plan is for me. Well, my advice to you is start heading in that direction. Start going that way. You know, the problem, though, and I think all of us experience this, is that in our minds, we have a preconceived idea of how God's going to accomplish it, right? Well, I know that this is going to happen. I know I'm only going to be here for this amount of time. And God, you know, we, we have it all figured out in our mind how God should do it and how he probably will do it. And then the problem, all of a sudden, wow, it doesn't happen quite the way we planned it would happen. Man, how do you navigate that? You become discouraged when there's detours or there's roadblocks that keep you from reaching those goals. That's when you and I need to trust God's sovereignty for how we're, how he gets us to that goal, how we arrive at his or your own goal for you. You know, Proverbs 19, excuse me, Proverbs 16 says this, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. If you're a type of person that, you know, you have it have it all planned out and you've got it all figured out, you've got the trajectory, you know how you're going to arrive at that goal, and God doesn't do it that way, that can be really frustrating. That can be hard sometimes. It says here that Paul and his companions stayed at Tyre seven days. Doesn't that strike you odd? Because here he skipped Ephesus, and he landed at Miletus, because, I mean, he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. And now at Tyre, and he doesn't know anybody there at this point. He's going to meet some people. But he doesn't know anybody, but he spends seven days there. Why? Why? Well, because the ship was unloading cargo and it was evidently taking that long before the ship would have its other cargo on. Maybe it had to work out some contracts or something and then it was ready to go again. You see, the timing for reaching that goal also was out of Paul's control. So not only are we to trust God's sovereignty and how you arrive at his goal, but also trust God's timing when you arrive at that goal. Of course, that's easier to say than to do, isn't it? It is for me anyways. Verse 4, it says, In finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. So you're on a, a path to God's specific will for your life. In God's sovereignty and in his timing, it seems like all of a sudden there's a roadblock or a detour. Something's happened that feels like it's preventing you from reaching that goal. It's outside of your control, because if you had control, you'd make sure you, you know, you wouldn't have that roadblock. You'd be, you'd be steaming full stream, steam ahead. What do you do? Well, like Paul, along the journey, you find disciples. I love that. You find disciples. Verse, uh, in verse 4, that word, finding disciples... It means to find out by diligently seeking disciples. In other words, it wasn't that Paul just stumbled onto something. Somebody said, praise the Lord in the marketplace next to Paul. Paul, oh, you're, you're a believer of Jesus Christ? So am I, you know? Have you ever had that happen before? It happens all the time, right? It wasn't that case. Paul went out of his way diligently to find disciples. By the way... This also shows how the influence of the gospel was spreading throughout the Roman Empire. Because just about everywhere Paul went, he could find disciples. And that's how, that's how the impact of the gospel was just, it was just like a wildfire spreading through the Roman Empire. You know, we don't typically use the word disciples for Christians we meet, Right? You know, you don't come home, maybe maybe you're, you know, you've been at work or something and you, you meet a believer and you, you come home and you tell your wife or you tell your husband, man, I met this disciple of Jesus Christ. We don't say that, do we? We usually say, hey man, I found someone, a brother or sister in the Lord, or I found a Christian or a born-again believer. You know, that's the terms we use, and yet here it's a disciple. I find that kind of interesting. I mean, you can meet people who profess to be Christians, but are they disciples? What is a disciple? Well, the word mathetes comes from the word matheno, and it means to learn or to understand. So mathetes is a learner. We might say a student or a pupil. But I got this out of the uh, word study dictionary. Is mathetes means more in the New Testament than a mere pupil or learner. It's an adherent who accepts the instruction given to him and makes it his rule of conduct. So a disciple is someone who's not only a student of the scriptures or a student of Jesus Christ, a pupil of Jesus Christ, it's someone whose conduct in life bears itself out according to scriptures. As they learn, they're applying what they're learning into their own life. It's changing their life. They're living according to what they're reading and what they're studying. That's what a disciple is. How do you find a disciple? How do you diligently seek and find a disciple? You know, Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out, the 70 of them out, two by two, he said, now whatever city or town you enter in, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And you know what I think? A disciple has a reputation. How do you find disciples? If you can ask someone, Hey, do you know anybody that is a disciple here? Of course, in our day and age, you'd have to explain what a disciple is, right? Um, but if you say, hey, is there any born-again believers here or something? They'd probably say, oh, yeah, there's that guy over there. Or there's that lady over there. You know, it, it, they have a reputation, don't they? Let me ask you this, just rhetorically. If a stranger came to your neighborhood or to your workplace or maybe your school, and they were looking for a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would they find you? Would they find me? If they asked around and said, hey, know of any disciples of Jesus Christ around here? And they said, yes, Travis, man. I work with this guy named Travis, man. He loves the Lord. He's weird. <laughs> He's a Jesus freak. <laughs> you know, we have a reputation. Hopefully all of us have a reputation. Not of being weird. And I'm a freak. But you know what I mean, right? We stand out. Hopefully we stand out. Well, these disciples at Tyre took Paul and his companions in. Man, they practice hospitality. That's a beautiful thing. So what if the place that you're at today is God's will for your life? In other words, you know, you, you've got this roadblock, you've got this detour or something, and you're like, I know that God sent, but what if, what if maybe you're a little bit mistaken and maybe where he has you is where he wants you to be? Or... Even if it's not, what if you're in a holding pattern? You know what I mean? it's like it's like, I don't know why I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm in this place. It might be a physical location or, or, or a situation in my life. I'm in this temporary situation. I know it's temporary. I know that I'm gonna, I know that God's got a plan for me, but, but I'm here. Does that mean that God's put our walk on hold, our lives' on hold? and it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm going to hit the pause button, and when I'm ready to move you on, I'm going to hit play again. I'm going to hit, you know run or whatever. What do you do when you're in that situation, where you're in that time of a, of, a no, of a pause or what? I like what Jesus said in Luke 19. He's speaking about the last days, but he gives this parable, and he says in, in Luke 19, verse 12 through 13, he says, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so he called ten of his servants, delivered, them to, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. What I'm getting at is if God has you in a holding pattern, you know that he's got a plan for your life, but here you are in this situation or at this place. could even be a physical location. Here it is in Rochester. Does that mean you're on the shelf until he's ready to use you? No. Do business until he comes. Be occupied. Find disciples. In other words, develop relationships where you're at. Get involved in the ministry of the local body of christ wherever you find yourself you know sometimes people who are transitory they don't really want to invest in relationships or in a fellowship because why because i'm not going to be here that long i I, i've got a destination and so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna hold off you know and and we tend to do that sometimes we've had an interesting history With Ever since we started this fellowship with uh, Mayo Clinic, students, people that come here um, from other wherever, and they become a part of our church, or they at least come and and attend our church at least once, you know. And they're Mayo Medical students, and for Mayo Medical students, like if we were a college town, it would be the same thing, right? Or maybe a military, like got a base nearby or something. Those people are temporary, right? They're not here necessarily for the long haul, maybe a couple years or something. We had one girl from Southern California that was a male medical student. And I say that girl because I I don't remember her name because she didn't get involved that much. We've had people like that. But we've also had people like, and you probably, well, most of you, some of you might know, John and Salia. John was a male medical student. He's now an emergency room physician out in California. We know them very well. You know why? Because they got plugged in. John ended up being an elder here at the church for a while. They were, they were involved. They knew they were transit transitory. They knew it was a temporary. But man, they wanted to get plugged in wherever they were at. Their life wasn't on hold just because they were here. Even though God, they knew that God had called them to, you know, be somewhere else. Before them, there was another couple, Brad and Heather. Some of you old timers. I don't mean age-wise, but you know. You've been here. You guys remember these names. And I could, I could list off all kinds of names. You remember them. Why? Because they got plugged in. You see, that's such an important thing. Whether you're here permanently or whether you're here trans, you know, just temporarily, man, your life's not on hold as a believer, man. Occupy till the Lord comes. Get involved. Develop relationships. Why? Because if you just hold back and think, you know, I'm not going to invest because I'm not going to be here. I hate saying goodbye or I hate hate developing a short-term relationship only to leave. You could be missing out on a tremendous blessing of an enrichment in your life of getting to know somebody. Being involved in a relationship with someone. There are those people, and some of them are, I have mentioned their names, who live life to the fullest wherever they're planted by the Lord and for however long they're planted there. They're building relationships. They're blessing others with their gifts and their talents, and they are being blessed with richness. That doesn't apply to this. I must have skipped skipped the thing. There's a roadblock there. It would have been really fitting at the point where I was sharing that, but anyways. They're being blessed with richness, the riches of koinonia. Koinonia. That's a Greek term. You might have heard it before. It's got a few different definitions, but it means fellowship, association, community, communion, and joint participation. If your life is on hold, you've got got one of those roadblocks in your life. You know that this is not your destination. You know God's got a plan and a purpose for you somewhere else. But for some other reason you're here, man, don't miss out on Koinonia. Don't miss out on that sweet fellowship. Continuing on here, verse 4. It says they, and it means the disciples at Tyre, told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now we already looked at Acts 19.21, where Paul said, um, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem, and after I've been there, man, I'm going to go to Rome. Paul knew that God had called him in those places. And we see the Spirit's warning in Acts 20, verse 22 and 23. Paul even admitted, he said, see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. So Paul already knew what was on the road up ahead for him. We don't know it, or they didn't know it now, but we know it because we have the whole book of Acts. In Acts 23, verse 11, we find out that it was God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. The Lord appeared to Paul there in Acts 23, stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem... So you must also bear witness at Rome. But before Acts chapter 23, verse 11, we have these well-intentioned, they're not bad people, they're well-intentioned believers here at Tyre. And you know, here Paul seems to interpret the Spirit's words as a warning. It's like the Holy Spirit's telling Paul, Paul, count the cost. Prepare to suffer. Because he would. The disciples, as well-intentioned as they are, they seem to interpret these warnings as a prohibition. Paul's spirit saying, don't go. How do you navigate something like that? I can tell you God's general will for each one of your lives this morning. Each one of you, I can tell you. God is not willing that any of you should perish, but that all should be, you know, repent and come to faith in him. I I can say that unequivocally to all of you. That's God's general will for you. Now, God's specific will. God wants you to be a a dentist in Timbuktu or something. Who knows? A missionary in Africa or something. I I can't tell you God's specific will for your life. Only the Spirit can and should. You know, often a well-intentioned saint will tell me, the pastor here, what the Spirit is saying to that person and they'll say, the Spirit has said this, therefore we as a church should do this, or I as a pastor should be doing this. And they're telling me based on their burden. And they're well, it's, not, it's not a they're bad people. Or, no, it's well-intentioned. I, I, don't, it, you know, I don't knock that at all. But the thing is, I have to hear the Spirit telling me something. I have to hear the Spirit telling me specific things. It might be possible that the Spirit is telling you, giving you that burden because he wants you to do that thing. But a lot of times people want to transfer it to the church. The church should do this. That's great. If the Lord confirms it in my heart, then yeah, I think you're right. We should do this. But if not, maybe he's giving you that burden. You see the need. He's speaking to you, maybe because you have the ability to fill that need or to meet that need. So the believers here at Tyre, when they saw that Paul was still determined to go to Jerusalem after their warning, what did they do? They respected Paul's decision. They might have been convinced that Paul was completely wrong. They voiced their opinion to Paul. Paul, this is really what I think you need to be not going to Jerusalem. That's how they interpreted it. But they accepted Paul's decision. Sometimes that's a hard thing to do. If you're in a relationship with someone and you you know you're like you feel like God's not telling them to do what they say God's telling them, how do you handle that? It's one of these situations. Verse five. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children, till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Someone happened to have a cell phone and took that picture when it happened. There, <laughs> It reminds me of the old flannel graphs, but that's just, that's my, I'm showing my age there. But anyways, you know, the disciples at Tyre, they took the advantage. They probably didn't know Paul beforehand, but they took the advantage of the opportunity to meet with Paul. Again, probably they never met him before. And they included their spouses and their children. And I think it's such a cool thing here. Listen, they brought their families together to listen to Paul teach as a family. They ministered to Paul and took him into his home as a family. They prayed with Paul as a family and they accompanied Paul to the ship as a family. It wasn't just the men of the town did this. It was the families, their spouses and their children. I think that's so cool to see. Parents... Husbands, wives, you know, sometimes we think family time, we separate family time and church time. You know, We're not going to come to church today because we've got family time. We're spending family time together. And I've t- I got to tell you this, family time and church should not be mutually exclusive. It's not an either or. A lot of times families get that feeling that it is. I want to encourage you to include church time as part of your family time. Because you're, you're training, your and I, and I see families here, I'm blessed by the families here that are encouraging their family, their kids and everything to be a part of the church, to be involved. I think it's so important. You know, we did that as, as parents with our kids. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, I'm not judging anyone about how they handled their family, but I tell you, in our family, you had to pretty much be at death's door, otherwise you were going to church. I mean, it's just like you didn't have an option. It's just, I grew up that way. You didn't have an option. I mean, okay, you're 105, fever, and you're about ready to drop, okay, well, maybe we'll let you stay home, you know. I, you know what I used to do? I used to get the thermometer, and when parents weren't looking, I'd be like rubbing it or putting it by some warm water, put it under, try to get it as hot as I could. Then, look, it's 99.9, you know. It's like, okay, you can stay home, you know. <laughs> I just confess that. I hope my mom's not listening. <laughs> Uh, my wife 's going to share that with my mom no <laughs> you know it it 's such cool my My youngest son called us yesterday, and uh you know he was a worship leader here at church, and he called us and said, you know the pastor the church' they 're going to a calvary chapter. He said the pastor asked me to be a, become an assisting pastor and i said that 's awesome man i 'm so proud of you." And you know we got them involved in our ministry. They—it wasn't either or. They got involved, and now we see the fruit of it in their own lives as adults. It's—it's it's a blessing. It's—it's it's not. You know, he kind of cracked me up because he said, "I ain't never going to be a pastor." And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> "So don't ever say never, buddy. <laughs> you're that step closer. You know, you one step closer. Don't. But that's all right." Verse six. When we had taken leave. Uh, Excuse me, when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. Verse 8, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea, and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now we've met Philip before through our study in the book of Acts. In fact, the very now this isn't Philip the disciple. This is Philip who would later be an apostle, Philip the evangelist. We met him, we heard of him, we read about him in chapter 6. The church was just exploding there in Jerusalem and it was getting to the point where there were so many widows that were being taken care of that the apostles that at that time, they were getting so focused on the actual, you know, hands-on ministry of, of, of waiting on tables and stuff, they got to the point where it's like, man, we can't even study the scriptures. We can't, even, we can't even focus on what God called us to. So they said, they prayed about it, and they said to the church there, Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And and Philip was one of those. In fact, in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, this is the Philip we're talking about, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. So that was the first time we met Philip in the scriptures. Philip's ministry went from Jerusalem to Samaria. And it it, it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Now Saul, who is Paul that we're reading about today. Now Saul was consenting to his death. That's the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Philip happened to be one of those who was scattered from Jerusalem based on this persecution that Saul of Tarsus began against believers. And in chapter 8, verse 5, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed, and the lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. So God, through persecution, changed Philip's uh, trajectory, and he ends up in Samaria. And what does he do? He starts ministering in Samaria. He starts being involved there. And the Lord starts working through him, ministering through him. And it's a thriving ministry. It's a, it's, a, it's a growing church there in Samaria. And then all of a sudden, he gets a word from the Lord in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And I like what it says, This is desert. It's like Paul's got this or I mean, Philip's got this thriving ministry and the Holy Spirit says, okay, now go over here. And by the way, it's an abandoned road (laughs) out in the middle of nowhere. And Philip obeys and he goes. And of course, you know the rest of the story. He meets the Ethiopian eunuch who's an official in Queen Candace's court. He gets saved and baptized. And now there's seeds planted that's in Ethiopia. Christians are going to, come from that, even down to this day day and age. There's Christians, there's a church in Ethiopia, probably from the fruit of that one situation. In the end of chapter 8, verse 39, it says, Now when they had come out of the water, because Philip baptized the eunuch, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus. That's kind of a weird thing, but we won't get into that this morning. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So that's how Philip ended up in Caesarea. Not a direct thing. It was just like, there he is. Now he's in Caesarea. Evidently, Philip settled in Caesarea, which is fascinating to me. Because of Acts chapter 10, let me just read a few verses to you. In Acts chapter 10, it says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what would have been called the Italian regiment, a devout man who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, "Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa, and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter." See that blows me away, because Philip was in Caesarea. Philip the Evangelist was in Caesarea, and yet God says, uh, "Cornelius, go down to Jerusalem. You know, send send down to Joppa, and there's a guy named Peter, and have him come." God had already used Philip for a high-profile encounter with an official of Queen the Queen of Ethiopia's court? Why didn't God use Philip for another high-profile encounter with Cornelius, the Roman centurion? This was another one of those pivotal salvation moments. The Bible doesn't tell us. If you were Philip, you know, and you're sitting there in Caesarea, and all of a sudden you come, you hear the story, yeah, there's a, there's a guy that wants to get saved and, and Peter came up from Joppa and, and witnessed to the guy and, and now, he's, now he's a believer. Well, if you were sitting there, Caesarea, you're Philip, how would that strike you? Would your pride be hurt? Man, why didn't God use me, man? I'm, I'm, I've been influential. Would you be angry at God? Or would you be jealous of Peter? Man, I can't stand that guy. Or would you just trust God's sovereignty and his timing and continue serving whatever role he has for you? Because I think that's what Philip did. He wasn't jealous. He wasn't angry. He might have wondered about it. I'm sure that's a natural thing. But he just kept on ministering. What role in ministry did Philip serve then at Caesarea? By the way, Philip had been there for 20 years at this point in Caesarea. What role did he do? Well, it's in verse 9. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Evidently, Philip's ministry was now to his wife and his children, and he raised a godly family. Never underestimate the importance of ministry to your family, guys, and mothers too. Never underestimate the importance of this ministry He became an example to his kids, and now 20 years later, they are recognized in ministry as prophets. I love that. Can you imagine your Philip? You've never met Paul before. Well, maybe you knew about him because you were in Jerusalem when Stephen was stoned. You heard all about him. You heard that he came to faith in the Lord. You're sitting there in your house in Caesarea and you you open up the door and there's uh, Paul. Can you imagine the conversation or whatever would have gone on between the two? I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall at that point. For all we know, this is the first time the two meet face to face. Verse 10 As we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come down to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Agabus. He's like a, an Ezekiel, he's like a Jeremiah, he's like a Hosea. He's like these Old Testament prophets that God said, "Okay, I forget which prophet, he says, I want you to lay on your side for 60 days or whatever, you know, and they lay on your side for 60 days and and uh, or I want you to cook your food over cow dung, you know. At first it was some other dung, but then he's like, "No, I can't do that." Okay, cow dung, you know. It was one of these situations just like the Old Testament prophets Agabus acted out the prophecy in front of Paul. Why did he do that? Well, it was designed both to confirm the prophecy. In other words, just like this is taking place, just as like I'm doing to you, this is what's going to happen. It was to confirm the prophecy as if it had already happened. But it was also to impact those who are watching and hearing the prophecy. I like this comment from a commentator, and I even mer- don't remember who it was. It says, we usually we see usually, excuse me, what we see usually makes a greater impression upon us than that which we only hear of. Keep that in mind when you're ministering to people or you're, you're in the workplace or in the home or family. Yeah, you can say things, but are you living it out, you know? We were introduced to Agabus before also, by the way, in Acts chapter 11. In verse 27, it says, In these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So it says that he showed by the Spirit that there was... So I wonder what he did in that point, you know. It's like, took away their food, you know. There's going to be a famine, or I don't know. But, but the prophecy he gave, it, it, it says right there in verse 28, it happened. It actually happened the way he said it was going to happen. It proved true. And this prophecy that Agabus now does here for Paul, it also was true. Not only will it occur just as as Agabus prophesied, but it was exactly what the Holy Spirit had already confirmed to Paul in his own heart. So this was a true word from the Lord. But look at verse 12. Now when we, and that would be Luke who's writing this gospel account and the other people that are with him, Paul's uh, companions. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Did Paul disobey the word of the Lord? There are some people that think he did. I don't think so. Because based on Acts 23:11, which I already quoted to you, it was the Lord's will. And it also seemed to be a fulfillment of Acts chapter 9 verse 15, because Paul would speak uh, before the nation of Israel and he would speak before kings. It just It just fits in what God had already told Paul his life would be like. Why then the prophecies and the warnings from the Holy Spirit? Why, why, why give him these things? I think it was a preparation to prepare Paul for the difficulties ahead. I don't like to think about this. I'd like to think that our life right now in in 2023 is going to be kind of this way and stuff, but the Lord's prepared us and given us scriptures about what our future could very well possibly be, and I I think we're starting to see it. In 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. There's going to be trials in your life and in my life. Second Timothy 3.12, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And if you love the Lord in this culture and you're living according to his word, and you believe what the Bible says about marriages between one man, one biological man, and one biological female, that, oh, yeah, there is a, you can actually tell that there is a female and a male. If you believe that, man, you're going to be, you're going to start being persecuted. I mean, you guys can see that. Jesus said in Matthew 10, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but he who endures to the end will be saved. And then a few verses later, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? And if they hated Jesus, they're going to hate us too. So we've been prepared too by the Holy Spirit. There is going to be trial. There is going to be persecution. And I think, you know, I I look back over the last 40, 50 years, and it feels like I was in a bubble. But I think that bubble's burst. (laughs) I think persecution's coming to our country, our culture. If God's plan for your life and my life includes glorifying him through suffering and persecution, are you and I going to be like Paul? Remember what Paul said earlier in, I think it was chapter 20 or chapter 19? The Spirit's saying I'm going to be, you know, chains and tribulation, I me," mean, but none of these things move me. Man, are we going to be like Paul? Well, how did Paul respond to them? They're saying, Paul, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. Verse, 20, uh, verse 13, Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I like what Matthew Henry said. Here is a quarrel of love on both sides and very sincere and strong affections clashing with each other. They love him dearly and therefore oppose his resolution. He loves them dearly and therefore chides them for opposing it. There there is no evil or animosity. They're both coming from love towards each other. And sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes there'll be two people that'll, that'll interpret a word from the Lord differently. What do you do in a church setting when there are different interpretations of God's will? What do you do? Look at verse 14. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Now I think it's important to note, this was not a disagreement about some sin. Like Paul was saying, you know what, I feel like the Lord's shown me that I can have a mistress. It's not something like that, or, or you know, uh, we can, uh, I, I think I can get drunk. I think I have that liberty to get drunk. It wasn't a sin issue. It was just a, an issue of dealing with direction from the Lord. And there's two different interpreting opinions about that prophecy from the Lord. The debate's not with rebellion against the Lord, but rather the direction of the Lord. Now, I'm going to say something here this morning, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say. If you've been around Calvary Chapel for any length of time, you know that this is a pastor-led church government model. There's there's like three different government models, right? There's a congregational-led church where everybody in the church has an equal say, completely. So everybody, there has to be a unanimous vote of everything, any decisions that are made in the church. Everybody has to, that's congregational-led church. There's also elder-led churches, where the group of elders are the ones that make the decision. I'm not saying, and then Calvary Chapel is the other one, which is a pastor-led church model. I'm not saying that a pastor-led church model is any better than, a, than an elder-ruled model or a congregational-ruled model. I'll be honest with you. I've seen failures in all, in all three. Why? Because it's people, right? We're humans. We're flawed. So I've seen failures in all three forms of church government. I could give you examples, but I won't. But think about this. What if the church model had been a congregational-led church or an elder-led church? Would Paul have gone to Jerusalem? Nope. I, I just it just floors me. Everyone except Paul interpreted the Spirit's warnings as a prohibition. Now, that does not mean in a pastor-led church that a pastor is always one hundred percent in step with the Spirit and makes perfect decisions every time. If you've been around here long enough, you know that that's not true, right? I make mistakes. I've made. I've made stupid stupid choices i've made you know wrong decisions so that doesn't happen every time but i just think wow if that had been that kind of a church government paul would have just been stayed back all these people felt paul was being told not to go to to jerusalem what did they do when they saw that he was determined to go they said, well, let the Lord's will be done. And they just had a peace about it. They went from arguing, and they probably had some pretty strong, Paul, don't go, don't, you know, stronger. But then they finally said, okay, the Lord's will be done. And they just had a peace about it. But not only that, they said, you know what? All right, God's will be done, and you know what? We'll, get, we'll pack our bags. We're going with you. You see what they could have done? said, Paul, you're mistaken, man. Uh, you, okay, you feel like what's God's will? Go for it. We're not going with you. They could have done that, but they didn't do that. They didn't depart from Paul like Barnabas did back in Acts fifteen. Remember, remember Barnabas? They had this heated disagreement over taking John Mark, and you know, nobody. I mean, we can debate it back and forth. You know, who was right? Who was wrong? Was anybody right? Was anybody wrong? But you know what's interesting? Barnabas, he went another way from Paul. They separated, and I think God used it to spread the gospel that much more. But you know what? You never read about Barnabas anymore in scriptures. So imagine if they had said, Paul, we're not going with you. I don't think Luke would ever finish the gospel of of Acts. We wouldn't be reading the book of Acts because Luke would have never finished it. He wasn't there. He didn't know what happened. Paul did get arrested, he was imprisoned, he was put in chains, and he underwent persecution. And you know what they didn't do? Or at least we don't read it. They didn't say, Paul, we told you so. You shouldn't have gone. Look, man, you drag us into the We don't read about that. The interesting thing is the Lord protected all of them through the persecution. The Lord even gave them a free ticket to Rome. You <laughs> know, he didn't have to pay for any transportation, man, courtesy of the Roman government. And the Lord used Paul to speak to kings. They trusted God's will would be done regardless, and they rested in that, and they went with Paul. And Luke, of course, like I mentioned, would later go on to write the book of Acts. Paul, in fact, it's believed that he was released from prison to evangelize more before he finally would be martyred years later at Rome. And you know the cool thing about this? Rome heard the gospel. In fact, members of Caesar's own household became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because of Paul and his imprisonment. You know, it's an interesting thing, what do you do when you're in a, when you're in a situation like that? And I think even in a church setting, especially in a church setting, man, you, two people, you both love the Lord, but you're, but you're seeing God's, you know, you're interpreting something differently and again, we're not talking about a sin issue. We're not talking about a violation of scriptures. It's just maybe a direction from the Lord. What do you do? What if you know that the other person's making a bonehead decision? It happens. Remember Abraham? The father of our faith? Remember what he did? You know, he, uh, he told his wife Sarah. You know, he, like God basically bl- promised to bless him in the promised land. And what did he do? He went down to Egypt during a famine. So he was Mr. Faithful, not completely trusting the Lord, and then he's he's kind of worried about getting killed by Pharaoh out there, and a, later on a guy by the name of or a, a person who was Abimelech. In both cases, he tells Sarah, "Hey, tell him you're my sister. Do that for me, okay? Otherwise, they're going to kill me." And was that God's will? I don't think so. But you know what Sarah did? Okay, she did it. She 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 listened. God protected her. Even in that bonehead decision, God protected her. And God did end up rebuking Abraham through both Abimelech and through Pharaoh. He was rebuked for what he did. But God still protected and still led them back to to Israel. I, I, I love that. I love that. Listen, are you trying to navigate God's will for your life? This morning, maybe you you, maybe you're sitting here and go, yeah, I know God's got a plan, and it's not here; it's somewhere else. Or maybe he's you're in a holding pattern. It's like, why am I just stuck in this situation? Or maybe you've had a setback. What do you do? I just want to encourage you: trust God's sovereignty. God's in control. He loves you. His plans are for good, not for evil. And trust His timing. I, you know, I don't know why God does what He does. I wish I did, but if I did, He wouldn't be God, right? I mean, because His ways are higher than our ways. But I do know this: He loves me. He loves you. He's got a good plan for your life. It's to glorify Him, and and maybe whatever He's got, whatever He's got you going through, or you're sitting in this situation here now, all of a sudden, who knows why? I I can't tell you why, but I do know that God loves you. And he's got a plan and a purpose for each one of our lives. And if you are in a holding pattern or you've come across a roadblock, man, don't put your walk in the Lord on the shelf. Don't do that. Get involved. Be in fellowship. Seek out disciples. Be fruitful wherever you find yourself planted and let God use the journey. Instead of we just think of the destination, you know. One of the things that I, I like doing and, uh, you know, I do a little bit more, and it, it depends on your personality, but, you know, uh, when Teresa and I go traveling, a lot of times we like taking the back roads. It takes longer, yeah, but you know what? You see things you haven't seen before. You, it's just relaxing rather than, okay, we got, you know, we got four hours to get to this destination, hit the interstate, you know, and, and uh, some people are just that way. That's fine. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying you're wrong or anything, but but life can be like that way. I've got this destiny, and you, you forget about everything else that's beside you, everything that's, and God wants to use those things in your life to enrich you, but also for you to enrich others. So just an encouragement, don't let, don't let whatever's, whatever the Lord's put in your path, don't let that stifle you, distract you, or disable you from just being used by him. But once you stand, let's go, Lord, in prayer.